electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Dominic Chu in for Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. If there was any hope left for a March rate cut, today's blockbuster job support put an end to it. But what about a May cut? Our economist now says that may be off the table as well. He tells us why and when he sees the first cut actually coming. Plus, the headaches of healthcare billing. We'll talk to the CEO of one company hoping to crack the code and leverage artificial intelligence to make it easier for patients and providers. He's going to tell us how. And with activist investor activity picking up, we're going to tell you which stocks are a bail and the ones that our trader would buy because of that activism. Yes, you get a bonus buy today because it's Friday. You're welcome. But we begin today with markets in the Dow, the S&P 500, and NASDAQ. Relatively mixed on the session so far, as you can see right there, generally green now. So tilting towards some more positivity. The Dow Industrial is currently just about up two-tenths of one percent. The S&P 500 up about one full percent and one and a half percent gains for the likes of the Nasdaq Composite. A big reason for that is Apple, Amazon and Meta. Now, Apple has been negative fractionally so for much of the day so far. It has now crept into positive territory and now back to now fractionally negative. Amazon's up about eight percent right now. And then Meta platforms near the highs of the session, up 22% on the day. More on that story coming up. Yields pretty much across the board are up. Across the entire yield curve, the benchmark 10-year note yield currently at 4.05%. The two-year note yield just a hair below 4.4%. Let's start with today's blowout jobs report. While the unemployment rate did hold steady at 3.7% in January, the U.S. economy added 353,000 jobs last month. That's far better than economist estimates on a consensus basis of 185,000. And that is taking the market probability of a March rate cut way down, all the way down to a one in five chance, roughly 22% probability there, with May's probabilities now also for a cut trending lower. Our next guest shares that sentiment. He does not see a cut coming until June. Let's bring in Michael Gapin, head of U.S. economics at Bank of America Securities, alongside our own senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. They're on the monitors right in front of me here. Steve, as we often do, let's start with you for the state of play. And let's put in context just how much of a blowout this number really was and what the expectations could be. All right, let me start at the bottom. The bottom is we're adding 100,000 workers uh, demographically every every month. Um, we were looking for 185, so we got 353. You can see we did a you know more than triple what's needed to put those coming into the workforce to work. And I don't know what you want to call it, just for fun, call it nearly double what the expectation was. I think a piece of this was seasonal adjust. We've had four blowout Januaries in a row. But then you put the revisions together with that, Dom, and I do see some serious strength in the job market here, uh, along with the higher wages that I think is worth putting into, into context. I will say this. I think it's interesting, Dom, and you're more of an expert out of this than I am. The way the market reacted, it's like, oh, my God, strong jobs numbers. The Fed's not going to cut. 
But wait a second. The jobs numbers are strong. People have a lot of money. Earnings are doing well. And then the market seemed to uh, take the other side of that trade as the day went by. Yeah, Steve, it sure doesn't feel like a recession, whether one's coming or not or otherwise. Maybe uh, Michael Gapin, let's turn to you. You're the economist. This number compared to what you thought, I had spoken at length over the last week or so to a hedge fund manager who had his own models about what the jobs number would be. And, and, and to this source, who will stay anonymous, he got it pretty close to this. He was expecting a blowout number. How much of this was a surprise for the economist community writ large? Well, I think like Steve said, it was, you know, it was double what economists were estimating. So there is a big upside surprise here. I do think some of it is related to seasonals, as Steve mentioned, that we're just not laying off as many workers on a post-holiday basis. So some of this is a little noise, not signal, but it's hard to argue when you look top to bottom across the employment numbers, the, the wage data, and, and so forth, that the labor market isn't in a, in a very strong position. It, it is. So there's some noise versus signal argument here, but the message seems to be clear. Where is the message, Michael, with regard to the inflationary context that this jobs number puts the economy in? Average hourly earnings still up roughly four and a half. I think it's 4.6 percent over the same time last year. A 19 cent per hour pickup over the last month, six tenths of one percent. Does this then mean that inflation is creeping back or is this just a little bit of noise, as you point out, that it could be something that we smooth over over the course of the next several months? Yeah, there, and, and also it could be something that gets eaten up in margins. For example, if consumers are price sensitive and and don't don't you know want to continue to purchase if if overall final consumer prices are going up, maybe this ends up as a margin story. So, yes, it, it does. If wage growth is running above what the Fed thinks is consistent with two percent, it will increase their concerns that inflation is not falling sustainably to two percent. I think they'd like to see wage data more in the three and a half percent range based on where productivity has been going on average over a longer period of time. So I think this would would raise concerns for the Fed about the sustainability argument and why they need, quote, greater confidence uh, that inflation subsiding before they begin uh, a rate cut cycle. So I do think it'll it'll keep concerns about services uh, inflation elevated. Steve, I remember sitting here with you out of the fresh out of the Fed lockup for the rate decision on Wednesday and talking about some of the nuance around the statement and the numbers. Let's take today's jobs number, the market reaction, as you point out, and then juxtapose it with the questions you and your colleagues in the media asked of Jay Powell during that press conference. Does it feel like the Fed is now justified in holding Pat a little bit longer before they start cutting rates hypothetically? Yeah, it's a great question, Dom. I thought they were justified in doing what they were doing uh, back on Wednesday. As you know, I've been sort of more in the May camp, and I've also been uh, more in the later and less camp, I guess is a better way to put it. Um, so I thought it was justified. I think it's going to be additionally justified now. But there is a big question, which Michael started to get at, which is, and you asked the same question, Dom, which is, how inflationary is that? We have had strong productivity growth. The Fed is okay with product with, with wage gains equaling productivity plus inflation. We're not the four six is not too far from that. I think that's a little exaggerated, but I don't think that we're really too much above that. It's going to be really interesting to see how the Fed approaches this issue of maybe we can have what we've had, which is strong uh, e economic growth, 
strong job growth, and still declining inflation. I think it's a reason for it to pause, but it's not necessarily a reason for it not to cut entirely this year. Michael, uh, we're going to give you a chance to tell us whether there is going to be a recession in America sometime in the next year, because none of the signs right now on a macro basis point to any kind of a recession coming. Yet the anecdotal evidence and headlines with continued tech layoffs in the hundreds and maybe thousands sometimes still has a real effect on many workers in America. What's the disconnect? I think the disconnect is the economy is a bit bifurcated. The industrial side of the economy has been in a recession for 12 to 18 months. Uh, What we would call low-touch services like technology and finance have been in a different position. But we're we're largely a services-oriented economy. If we're adding this many jobs every month, it implies a lot of growth in, in labor market income. With inflation coming down, that means growth in real personal income and consumption can hold up. So I I think the odds of the U.S. falling into a recession this year are are lower. And every time we get an employment report like this are probably declining by the day. Um, But to to Steve's point, if it's if it's driven by supply side forces and the and the data say solid growth, low unemployment, declining inflation, right? That's the best of all worlds and recession risk is low. But if it it means that inflation's coming back and the Fed has to raise rates again, well, then maybe 2025 is a different story. But I think 2024 should be a good year for the U.S. economy. Policymakers still have their work cut out for them. Michael Gapin, thank you very much, sir, at Bank of America. Also, of course, to our own Steve Leisman. I hope you both gentlemen have a great weekend. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. Our next guest says don't be fooled by the data. Speaking of, he still thinks a slowdown is coming of the other side of that trade. And when it does, there are three areas where he sees some opportunity. Let's bring in Delancey Wealth Management's Ivory Johnson. He's also a member of the CNBC Financial Advisor Council. Uh, This is our ultimate balance play for this particular part of the show, because we've got some more positive bullish elements coming from our macroeconomic analysis just now in the last five minutes. And We're coming in with Ivory Johnson, and you're not quite as optimistic. Tell us why. Well, you know, if you look at, for example, the GDP numbers, uh, it was it was outstanding over three percent. But there's something called the deflator because it's inflation adjusted. They didn't use the CPI numbers over three percent. They used one point three percent that that actually increased GDP growth by 200 basis points. Um, we're having this discussion about when the Fed will cut interest rates because that started, I guess, in, in November when CPI came in lower than expected. But what what you know is behind the scenes. What you'll see is that you know the CPI numbers assume that uh, healthcare premiums declined by thirty percent, and so I tend to you know I believe in making the main thing the main thing. Uh, these numbers are good, but, you know, GDP growth, uh, 17 percent contributed by the federal government is what's normal. Uh, but this time in 2023, uh, they contributed 30 percent towards GDP. A new hires normally at 6 percent. That was 22 and 21. Last year, they contributed 2.3 percent because the government spent, you know, an extra two and a half trillion dollars, put that on the balance sheet. That's three times what we spent bailing people out in 2008. I don't know how sustainable that is. And so I'd be more likely to look at our companies making money. Forty percent of Russell 2000 companies are have negative earnings. You take out those seven stocks 
the magnificent seven stocks, the other 493 stocks had negative earnings growth, had negative income growth. So, you know, it remains to be seen if the economy is going to recover and be able to sustain itself without the government spending. Ivory, the magnificent seven, or even before they were mag seven, were still the driving force behind the markets and the driving force behind why the markets kept going higher. And maybe even arguably the reason why there was an economy that never went into a hard landing scenario. If you feel as though the other 400 and some companies are more indicative, that would have been the case the last six or seven years, right? It would have been. So that's why these job numbers are so important because you've got systemic order flows. You got $460 billion, according to Vanguard, that's going into the defined contribution plans. And so 30% of the S&P are these seven stocks, and 70% of those, those that flow is going into the S&P, is going into the stock market. You know, you have a concentration of money going into these, these companies and creating buy-side pressure. Uh, the other thing I'll, I'll mention is now you have, you know, zero days expiration options. That's, that's probably close to 50% of the S&P 500 options volume right now. That was much lower a few years ago. So you're talking about a trillion dollars in notional value every day being traded in these zero-data expiration options, which forces the other side of the market, the person who who took the premium, to hedge their portfolio. That creates buying pressure. So again, it's 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 a, it's not two years ago. It's, it's now, uh, and I'm still interested to see how all these things will play out. All right. I mean, it's interesting because volatility still remains relatively low for, for the most part. Uh, all right, Ivory, because you are a financial advisor, before we let you go, yep. what do investors then buy given your scenario? Right. So I wouldn't, I'm not pulling money out of the market. I have the magnificent seven in, in my portfolios, but you can also add gold. It's a safe haven. Uh, to get, got your double digit returns last year. Money market funds will give you no volatility and 5%. Uranium stocks is another opportunity. Uh, the IEA says they're going to have to double the, the supply of nuclear energy to, to meet some of these net zero demands. And don't forget, there's something called Bitcoin, which you exchange something for a dollar, which is an abundance, uh, for something that's scarce, which is Bitcoin. So to the extent that the government continues to spend money uh, beyond their means and create liquidity, as we've talked about with lowering interest rates, you would expect Bitcoin to do better uh, that's what happened last year when the rate of the tightening slowed. That was bullish for Bitcoin, just as when the tightening increased, it was bearish for Bitcoin. So there are other things you can buy than just the traditional stocks. All right. Gold, digital gold, and uranium, says Ivory Johnson. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon, sir. Thank you. All right. Coming up on the show, today is the deadline for companies to send the Biden administration suggestions for AI regulation. And the number of companies involved in artificial intelligence lobbying has taken off in the past year. Maybe not shocking. The industry implications are coming up next. Plus, the FAA halting production expansion for the Boeing 737 MAX jets. We'll talk to one of Boeing's direct suppliers about how they've had to pivot their business as the ripple effects from that door plug blowout widen. The exchange is back after this break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Artificial intelligence lobbying is coming off a record year as companies in virtually every single industry want to have a say in the government's future guidelines. CNBC Washington correspondent Megan Casella has a closer look at the numbers for that AI lobby. Megan. Don, that's Don, right. That's We've right. been working, We've been with, working Ukraine with Ukraine Secrets to try to, to, try to understand, understand the size and the scale of this lobbying effort. And what we found in that data is that more, more than 450 organizations registered to lobby the government on AI just last year. Now, that's a 185% jump from the year before. And there's a big range of companies getting into the mix here. It's not just tech companies, but it's retailers. There's pharmaceutical companies, the banking industry, unions, universities, you name it. And a lot of the big names here just launched their AI lobbying efforts in 2023 for the first time. That includes Apple, that includes TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, Uber, Lockheed Martin, Nike. So you can start to see the range of companies that are getting involved here. Now, all of this comes as business is really trying to shape President Biden's new AI regulations. And today is actually the deadline for public comment on guidelines that will shape AI safety and security. So we've been digging through the government filings to see what companies are asking for. One theme we've been seeing is that companies are really saying, you know, a one-size-fits-all approach isn't going to work here. Salesforce is one company calling this out, and they're saying that regulation needs to take into into account the complexity of AI ecosystems. IBM also getting involved here. They're highlighting the workforce implications of AI and saying that while risk management guidelines are key, Quote, such mechanisms are only effective if organizations have employees appropriately skilled to execute them. So we'll keep tracking these comments as they come in, Dom. But what's clear is there will be no shortage of opinions or money to influence AI policy. Megan, based upon your reporting, just how likely is it that we're going to see any kind of real market movement on trying to regulate or craft legislation? This all seems very theoretical comment seeking and everything else. But when will be maybe a possible timeline for when we could actually see some kind of either legislation or regulation physically, concretely come to the markets and come to the to the government? Of course, that's the big question. And it does feel theoretical, but the regulatory effort really is moving forward. So President Biden signed that executive order back in October. There were a lot of various deadlines included in that, but a big one was 90 days. We passed that 90-day deadline this week. So that means this comment period is going to end. Of course, there's still some time here, but they're really coming up with those rules. Those are going to come into place. I would expect sometime this year we start to see more regulation in the next few months, I would say. Legislation is a different story, though. Of course, in Washington, we don't expect a ton to come out of Congress, especially on such a huge issue and especially in an election year. So there's a lot of bills floating around Capitol Hill. It's not likely, could always be wrong, it's not super likely that one of those sees a lot of movement this year. But on the regulatory side, the executive branch has some power, and that's where we're going to see the action. All right. Megan Casella on the AI lobbying effort. Thank you very much. We'll see you later on. All right. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is issuing new rules targeting those inefficiencies caused by health insurers denying coverage. But our next guest is already using what else? AI to do the same thing, predicting and preventing denials before they actually come in.
Joining me now is Mike Desjardins, the CEO of Anomaly. Uh, Mike, this is an interesting story. What exactly do we use AI for with regard to moving the insurance industry forward, specifically when it comes to things like health? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Dom. I, uh, I really appreciate the question. Um, so what we do um, and what I think others like us can do uh, is really decode and unmask um, and really present uh, what insurance companies um, at their base will cover and pay for, which shouldn't be as difficult to unpack as requiring AI to do it, but uh, it turns out it, uh, it is. So uh, this is about trying to uh, efficient, efficiently get folks into a process where they don't feel so intimidated or, or understand maybe the nuances within certain parts of this, this insurance industry because they can be daunting. What exactly can consumers or, or possible policyholders look to gain through anomaly technology? Sure. Um, so I, I would say certainty would be the biggest thing and really transparency. Um, there was an interesting survey done by uh, the American Hospital Association, and it pointed out one of the few things that all Americans agree on right now. About 83 percent of people um, agree that they want more transparency from their health insurance. Uh, it makes me wonder what the other 17 percent want. Um, but right now, the reality is no one really knows with any real detail before they get care what's covered. I mean, I do this for a living and I don't. Uh, my wife and I just had a uh, baby seven months old now, and we're still working through uh, various denials. And I, I literally am the CEO of a company um, that is designed to prevent this kind of stuff. So, you know, really transparency and certainty so that we can know these things up front rather than having to deal with it after we've already gotten care that we don't know what it costs. And then finding out, by the way, that it's not covered and then you got to work backwards uh, through that process. Uh, we can use technology now to make that much better on the front end so patients have a better idea and then policymakers um, can continue to push uh, on their end to require uh, transparency, which well, I think is, let uh, me is just, a step in the right Let direction. me just say, by the way, congratulations, first of all, on the birth of your child, you <laughs> and your wife on that. Uh, thank you for bearing the thank lead you. there for us. Congratulations on that part. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk, let's talk a little bit about this, though. How exactly do your systems then operate? We've talked about things like large language models and, and, and mm -hmm. you know, machine learning. What exactly do your sure. systems and technology parse through? What is it that's teaching, so to speak, these systems to tell potential users what exactly is going to be possibly at a higher odds of being denied or paid or anything else? Yeah, great question. Um, we really lean on the health bills themselves. So the claims that go out from the provider um, and then what's called uh, the remits. So what insurers have to send back in a reply, either, yes, we paid this or no, we denied it. And the reason we train on that data is right now, when you think about your doctor um, and then your insurance company, whoever it is, they'll have contracts that are largely free text and have all kinds of disclaimers like, you know, we'll pay the lesser of, um, you know, when mixed in with real kind of hard-coded numbers. And then there's policies that dictate the things they'll actually pay for. Sometimes they follow them, sometimes they don't. Um, and that gray space is where we wind up with a ton of uncertainty uh, and denials, and that's really why we lean on the bills that go out and the data that comes back. So we know that regardless of what that paper says, the policies and the contracts, we're also taking what they're actually doing so we can match up the gaps. And that's really the intelligence that you know, we're at least starting with to bring back to the doctor so they know um, and can tell a patient in advance what'll be covered and what won't. And that brings me to a final point here, Mike. Can you clarify for us 
who the customer is, right? I mean, there's a lot of stakeholders and, and, and hands around this kind of medical insurance and, and doctor hospital side of things. Ultimately, who are you trying to get this product in front of? Who ultimately will pay for it? Sure. Um, another great question. And right now, it's the doctors themselves and the health systems uh, that they work in is, is our primary point. Um, reason for that is, one, um, they really kind of keep the keys, so to speak, in terms of the care you get and the bills that ultimately go out. And that's really where the trust is in the health system. Patients trust their doctors, not their insurance companies. And that's where we start. And then what we're working on is we get um, kind of a big enough data set and clear enough data. We do want to expose that uh, to patients themselves. So you could do you know, something that isn't novel in any other industry except for healthcare, which is basically inform you uh, about the plans you're buying. So you know plan A covers what you want and plan B doesn't, which right now, even something that simple is uh, unfortunately very hard to do. Healthcare, such a large part of our gross domestic product in America. Mike Dejadon, thank you very much at Anomaly. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate you having me on. All right. Now, coming up on the show, we're talking about a different kind of artificial intelligence, and that's activist investing, AI, get it, AI, artificial intelligence, a special edition of three bales and a buy with what shareholders need to know amid these heavyweight proxy fights. And as we head out to break, here's a look at Tesla, down 2% after the automaker recalled more than 2 million vehicles for a software update because some of the warning lights on the dashboard are a little bit too small to read. Shares are, by the way, coming off their worst month in over a year and are now down 26% since January 1st. Tesla shares right now down 2.25% in trading today. The exchange is back after this. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now are generally positive, with the Dow hovering kind of towards the higher end of the range so far. At the highs of the session, the Dow is up 136 points at the low point, down 183. And generally speaking, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ Composite have been solidly higher for most of the day. Now let's send it over to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Good afternoon, Tyler. Tom, thank you very much. Senator Chris Murphy said text of a national security supplemental bill will be released over the weekend. The lead Democratic negotiator for the Senate border talks also posted on X that voting on the bill will be next week. This is in line with Majority Leader Senator Schumer's comments yesterday on the floor that it could come as early as today, no later later than Sunday. Reddit is reportedly set to go public this year, and according to a report in the Wall Street Journal, when it happens, the social platform will list on the New York Stock Exchange, not the NASDAQ. It's a win for the NYSE, which battles the tech-heavy NASDAQ index for IPO listings. And star podcaster Joe Rogan has reached a new deal with Spotify that will let his show reach a broader audience by distributing the Joe Rogan experience across multiple podcast platforms. Financial terms of the multi-year deal were not announced, but the journal reports that it is worth as much as $250 million. Dom, let's go into business. I, let's do it. Let's make podcast. some podcasts. Let's make some pod- Me and you, Ty. I, I'm, yeah. I'm going to talk to you after the show. I'm on it. All right. Coming up on the show here, ripple effects coming out of Boeing 737 issues being felt across the entire manufacturing ecosystem. And up next, we'll speak with the head of one company putting their expansion, their personal expansion plans on hold because of Boeing's problems. And as we head out to break, here's a look at some of the names hitting all-time highs today in trading. Put on that list, NVIDIA. Uber, Eli Lilly, Berkshire Hathaway, 
Costco, amongst others. The Exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. The FAA is halting Boeing's 737 MAX production expansion plans last week following the Alaska Air door plug-up blowout. That's not impacting just Boeing, but also the suppliers that were banking on increased orders for those jets. Joining me now is one of those very suppliers, Rosemary Brewster, CEO of Hobart Machine Products. Rosemary, thank you very much for being part of the show today. We appreciate it. Uh, First off, for, for much of America who doesn't know exactly what Hobart does, what exactly do you do and what kind of stuff do you supply to Boeing? Well, we're a precision manufacturing company here in the state of Washington. We've been supplying airplane parts to the Boeing company and their tiers um, throughout the last 48 years. And, you know, I'm, I'm just pleased to be on this show to help express our concerns and how we see um, this event moving forward. Rosemary, that's a good point here. What, what, how important is Boeing for a company of your size? And just how big are you and how big of a piece of your business does Boeing have? Oh, good question. Well, we're under 10 employees here and have grown and shrunk over the years, depending on different um, areas of the industry. Um, We're growing the company now. The problem that we see is that there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And so we have expanded like everyone else did a ramp up, trying to support the new um, delivery schedules. And what we've done is we've put on hold our hiring process um, and a wait and see um, effort to find out exactly when the FAA and Boeing will have the final approval to do that full ramp up. Rosemary, how would you characterize your relationship as the chief executive president of this company with your counterparts at Boeing? Have you guys had a an open dialogue about the problems that are happening right now? Have you guys talked about uh, what it'll mean for your future ability to supply Boeing, given some of the stalls that you've seen so far? No, and I don't expect them to speak about this issue directly with me. I will say that I was honored, our company was honored last in December with an award from the Boeing company for our partnership throughout the years. And that tells me that they have a lot of trust in us and that we will be um, on their uh, preferred supplier list and um, moving forward with this project. In your mind, how important is the 737 MAX series, the, the, the line of jets, whether it's the 8, the 9, the 10, everything else? How important is it in your mind to your future uh, and by extension, of course, directly to Boeing's future as well? Oh, it's, it's extremely important. It's not just my future. It's the future of all aerospace companies manufacturing component parts for that aircraft. Well, depending on which, um, whether it be the MAX, the 10, the 9, 8, whatever it would be. But no, it's not just my company. We're all in this together. We need to support each other. It's, re- it's extremely important. And, you know, I would get on a Boeing plane today and fly across the country. I have no problem with that because I know that the people that are doing the jobs that they need to do. This was an anomaly in my mind. And so far, I haven't seen anyone prove that or disprove it. 
Rosemary, I mentioned the relationship that you do or do not really have on the Boeing side. I wonder, can you take us through whether or not you've also spoken with some of your other peer supplier organizations and companies, other suppliers that also work with Boeing? Uh, is there a, a working group or some kind of a, a focus group that you guys have with regard to how you guys are navigating through this? And if there's not, do you think that there could be something like that, uh, like a peer organizational group that can kind of help each other work through some of the in uncertainties that are happening because of the Boeing 737 MAX production delays? That's a good question. We have a multitude of aerospace organizations here uh, locally that we get together once a month, and we're very open and free to talk about what's happening. And most of us all agree. We're just waiting to see what's going to happen with the outcome from the FAA. And we're all working together to make sure that we all are viable suppliers to the Boeing company. I support not only Boeing, but their tier ones, twos, threes, and they also contract back with me. So I see this moving forward as a great opportunity to be more collaborative and, and see more partnerships. All right. Rosemary Brester, thank you very much for being a part of this show here and telling us your story. Uh, we wish you and all the other small and medium-sized businesses that rely on Boeing a lot of luck in the coming months. Oh, I think that we're all going to be just fine. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Have a nice weekend, Rosemary. Coming up on the show, there were 600,000 open manufacturing positions in the U.S. last month. Kate Rogers is in Brisbane, California, with a look at the challenges facing the industry and a company working to change those things. Kate, you're not in a hard hat, but you are in a facility there. <laughs> Not in a hard hat, I am wearing the protective glasses and we're gonna tell you about all of the workers that are gonna be needed on modern manufacturing floors just like this one in the years to come, coming up after the break on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. Four million manufacturing workers will be needed in the next few years, thanks in part to recent legislation like the CHIPS Act. Kate Rogers is in California with that story and a look at a company working to close that skills gap and try to fill some of those numerous roles. Kate, can you tell us where you are and why you have to wear safety glasses? <laughs> Hi, Dom, good to see you. We're here at Ample's manufacturing facility. The company is looking to double its manufacturing workforce from 100 to 200 workers by the end of this year as it leans into partnerships it has with Stellantis, Daimler, and Uber. It manufactures battery packs for EV swapping. It also recently launched an apprenticeship program as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act. It's looking, like many other manufacturers, for skilled workers, and it's taken on that training itself. As we started needing to really ramp up and scale very quickly, that just got more and more challenging. So to a great degree, kind of, we see the writing on the wall, to the degree where right now we assume as we're bringing people that we're gonna, we are going to be doing some, some level of training. Now, Ample is just one of many U.S. manufacturers seeking to hire and upskill its workforce. The Manufacturing Institute projects that by 2030, manufacturers are going to need to fill 4 million jobs, and more than half of those jobs could go unfilled if modern manufacturing careers aren't pursued. The message here from recruiters, this isn't your grandfather's manufacturing job. The biggest misperception about manufacturing is what modern manufacturing really looks like. People just don't know. They think that it's, you know, um, antiquated or that you come in and you do one job. They don't know that man modern manufacturing today is all about technology. 
and you can expect more positions will need to be filled because we have seen this increase in uh, construction related to manufacturing investment taking place in part as you mentioned to some of those uh, initiatives like the CHIPS Act, like the IRA and like the infrastructure law. But as we know, both construction, DOM and manufacturing do have these long-standing skills gaps and worker shortages. They need to bring younger workers in as baby boomers retire and train them and retain them to get this work done. Back over to you. All very big issues facing a lot of industries right now, Kate. Are manufacturers using AI and how can it solve the worker shortage? It seems counterintuitive because I thought AI was going to take all those jobs. (laughs) <laughs> it's so funny, the Wall Street Journal had an article about people who are kind of corralling the robots now, right? Because that's that's a job that's going to be needed to be filled. Uh, also, Ample CEO told us that these robots are getting more and more sophisticated thanks to robotics and AI. And in his opinion, he hears that that makes the job more fulfilling uh, and, and more challenging for people, more intellectually stimulating. So that's one way. And I also mentioned uh, earlier in the day that Deloitte had a big study about using AI to recruit the right workers with the right skill sets and kind of call through the candidate pool for some of these manufacturing jobs. So it's also being used on that end by manufacturers, not just on the floor, but also during the recruitment process to make sure that they're finding workers to fill all of these open jobs. And Kate, you cover a lot of small and medium-sized businesses out there. We just spoke with Rosemary Brester at Hobart uh, Precision Parts. Uh, They're seeing some issues with regard to the, you know, perhaps uncertainty around certain things tied to Boeing. But there's also uncertainty with regard to how AI can be used in small and medium-sized businesses. Is there a sense that you get Mm -hmm. from your travels that AI is gonna be bigger in small and medium-sized businesses going forward? You know, small and medium-sized businesses, Tom, are always trying to figure out the way to be most efficient, right? Because they've got to compete uh, with larger businesses. So I think as it pertains to, you know, making them more nimble or perhaps more competitive, you're going to see it implemented in varying ways. I think recruitment is one of the ways that it's definitely going to come up. Uh, and other efficiencies that could present themselves, you know, depending on the sector and, and what type of small business you're talking about. But I'm sure there will be applications across the board. And as we know, labor shortage, huge issue for Main Street as well. Number two issue in the NFIB's poll last month, and we'll see uh, what this month brings on that front. Kate Rogers, live from a factory. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. (laughs) All right, coming up, 2024 is off to a busy start for activist investors. This name recently became a target. Shares are down over 50% over the past year. Does this mark the start of a turnaround? It's our mystery chart. It's coming up next. Keep it right here. Welcome back to The Exchange. Companies faced a record number of activist investor fights last year. Lazard reporting there were more than 250 global campaigns and 2024 showing no signs of slowing down. So how should you play the proxy battles? Joining us for a special activist edition of Three Bales and a Buy is Danielle Shea, Simpler Trading's Director of Options. Danielle, great to have you here. Big Oil has been an activist target for some time and something ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods is familiar with given the company's ongoing fight with engine number one. He addressed that situation earlier this morning with the team on Squawk Box. These aren't true investors. These are uh, activists masquerading as investors and frankly uh, using other people's shares to bring proposals to the company that aren't in the best interest of the company, aren't in the best interest of our legitimate investors. And so uh, we have been trying to highlight this as an issue. And uh, the SEC has reinterpreted its rules. And as you've indicated here, uh, made it much, much easier for these activists um, 
to bring proposals to the to uh, our proxy that frankly uh, diminish the the ability for us to effectively run our business. So those investors that Darren Woods has mentioned are pushing for increased emission restrictions. Meanwhile, BP is facing activists with the opposite goal. This week, Bluebell Capital called for British Petroleum, formerly British Petroleum, to ditch the green transition and increase fossil fuel production as it underperforms some of its peer companies. Danielle, let's start with BP, the company formerly known as British Petroleum. What's the trade for BP? So when you look at BP, BP has been showing a lot of relative weakness here. So I don't like this stock. You know, I think for now it's a hold. But if you break below 33.50, that for me would be a sell. If you look at earnings, they've missed earnings estimates the last seven out of 12 quarters. So for me, I don't like that either. And then I also don't like the way that it gapped down 4.9 percent last quarter. So, you know, I think it's okay to hold it. But if it breaks 33.50, it's a sell. Okay, Danielle, and forgive me for this because... We had just set it up talking about Darren Woods and ExxonMobil. Let's go to our side of the Atlantic. What's the, what's the trade on ExxonMobil? So I, you know, I like ExxonMobil and I'm invested in XLE and I am invested in ExxonMobil. I think that this is one of the shining stars within this space. It has been a little bit weak. You know, we've seen a little bit of relative weakness this year. But if it can break out up above 105, I think that would be a great spot to add more shares. That being said, if we continue to get this weakness and it breaks down below 95, I would change my analysis. But this is one of the leaders in this space. Okay, so there's the big oil trade. Next up, we're going to put a bail up there. It's Etsy in your mind. This was, by the way, the mystery chart that we showed you just before the commercial break. Shares are losing about half their value over the past year, but they popped yesterday after Etsy announced a partner from Elliott Management would join its board of directors. Elliott has said it's built a sizable stake in Etsy and will work to improve customer experience and long-term value for shareholders. BTIG is saying that Etsy could benefit from a fresh pair of eyes on the company. But Danielle, you are skeptical. I am skeptical, and I think that this is a better one to short into strength. So it has quite a bit of overhead resistance between the $75 and $90 price point. Um, Typically, stocks like this that are in a longer-term downtrend and they pop on news, especially before an earnings report. If you look at the way that it's behaved the last three quarters post-earnings, we've been seeing this stock fall. And so when you have a trend like that and then you have a stock that's gapping up before earnings, it can oftentimes be a spot for investors to get out, you know, if they're in a losing position. Um, and so for me, I think this one's a short between 75 and 90. Obviously, 75 would be the more aggressive level. Um, and then I short it down to 65, wrong above $90 a share. All right, Danielle, that's the trade on Etsy in your opinion there. The last one that we have is the bail that you have on Wendy's, which is down 15% in the last year. Activist investor Blackwell's reportedly planning a challenge to Nelson Peltz and the Wendy's board of directors on which three Tryon representatives with Peltz's side sit. But Gordon Haskett is calling it a publicity stunt as Blackwell's looks to push back on Tryon's activism on Disney shares. There's so many different activist cross currents here. Why are you bailing on Wendy's? 
So when you look at Wendy's, you can see that it's gapped up the last few quarters after earnings. However, those gaps have immediately sold off. Right there, you can see that you have investors taking profits any chance you get on an upward move. You also have the fact that it's underneath critical resistance. It's in a short-term downtrend. Um, and you know, again, when you have a stock that's coming up on an earnings report and you've had these negative reactions to earnings in the past, that's typically an opportunity for investors to get out before the report. So I think this one is a short here. I trade it down to about 1750. Um, I'd say, you know, I'm wrong above about 2122. All right, Daniel, we've got just a few moments left here. Speaking of Disney, that's a buy for you today. Shares are down 15% for the year. The company setting an April 3rd date for the shareholder meeting where Nelson Pelton Tryon, as well as Blackwell's, will try to get their board nominees appointed. What makes you a buyer of Disney? I think Disney's finally turned around. Disney was a sell for me for quite a while, but the last two quarters after earnings, we've seen some gaps higher. Uh, we're, we're just seeing a positive trend emerging from the lows in Disney. So with this one, um, it has already rallied, so I don't like it for a buy right here. I'd prefer to buy it a couple dollars lower, but I think that traders can trade it up into about the $100 a share price point. Danielle Shea with all of those stocks on bales and buys at Simpler Trading. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. All right. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.